All right, today we are back into Genesis, and uh, we're working through the story of Joseph together. Now, if you've been with us through all of Genesis, you know that especially early on in Genesis, huge amounts of time just flew by really fast, hundreds of years, thousands of years in between chapters and stories, and yet now we get to the story of Joseph, and it's like everything just slows down. And so today and next week, two chapters cover just a small amount of time, just a matter of hours, and they, we have this level of detail and conversations and stuff that we, we didn't see through most of Genesis, and just that, that reality of how the book is written for us clues us into the fact that the things that are happening in the life of Joseph are very significant, and we should be paying attention to them. So, if you have been tracking with us, then you're up to speed. If you haven't, then I encourage you to go back a few chapters in your own reading and read the whole story of Joseph. Get a picture for what's going on. But let me try to bring you up to speed here. Let's put the family tree slide up, Caleb. So, we've been dealing for a long time now with Jacob's family. Jacob, who was renamed Israel, he's the the father of the nation of Israel. Jacob had a, a pretty messed up family. He got himself four wives, a whole bunch of kids, Uh, At the time that I made this chart, he only had one daughter. We actually don't know how many other kids came along after that. But uh, it was a family of strife, of fighting, of trickery. There was all kinds of crazy stuff going on. His first four sons all made a real mess of things. We learned through earlier chapters in in, uh, Genesis that Simeon and Levi, numbers 2 and 3, committed genocide, premeditated murder of a whole population of the city of Shechem. Reuben, the firstborn son, committed incest with one of his father's wives in order to rise up, try to take the leadership of the family. Judah, number four, impregnated his daughter-in-law, who was disguised as a pagan prostitute. These guys are a mess. Ten brothers banded together against the favorite brother, Joseph. The beloved brother, Joseph, the, the favored one that dad just adored. They banded against him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. And then they lied to dad about him being torn apart by wild animals. That left Benjamin as the only truly beloved son in the family. A whole bunch of sons that were really just a a sore in the side of Jacob for many years. But then Benjamin, little Benjamin, who was only two years old when Joseph disappeared, Benjamin was the beloved one. He was the only remaining son of the beloved wife, Rachel, the favorite wife. Benjamin's going to play a key role in this chapter and the next chapter. But for a number of years, he was just the favorite son at home. Joseph was living a life, they thought he was dead, but he was living a life, a roller coaster life in Egypt. He started out with life really as great as it could be. He's in an up-and-coming, prosperous, um, happening family. He's the favorite son, and then he's sold as a slave. He goes down into a dip in life, but God rise, raises him up in prison so, or in uh, in slavery so that he becomes the the manager of this 
this important household in Egypt. He's the second in charge, so he's trusted with great power and authority, but then he's wrongfully accused, and he gets thrown in prison, so he's at a new bottom, but then one of the prisoners gets out, and he's supposed to talk to Pharaoh on his behalf. He totally forgets about it, and so Joseph had his hopes up for a little while, and then they crashed back down again, and he spent another two years in prison feeling not only forgotten by men, but probably spending a lot of time wondering if God had forgotten him also. And then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a couple dreams, and the guy remembered Joseph, and Joseph was brought out, and he interpreted the dreams because God had supernaturally gifted Pharaoh in that way. And the dreams turned out to be a specific, clear warning for Pharaoh that the next 14 years are going to be unlike anything that the world had seen. There would be seven consecutive years of amazing plenty, bumper crops, more food than you know what to do with, store up as much as you can because those next seven years are going to be famine like you can't imagine. Not just in Egypt, but all over the known world at that point. Joseph... Is he now finds himself as the second most powerful man in the world administrating this huge food saving up and distribution program in Egypt, governing over all the land of Egypt with only Pharaoh above him. We saw last week how his brothers were sent to Egypt in order to buy food, they, uh, they didn't recognize that the man that they were buying the food from was their brother. Uh, he spoke harshly to them. He threw them in prison. He said, uh, I'm only going to allow one of you out to go home to get this other brother that you say is alive and bring him and prove if you guys are really telling the truth or if you're just spies like I think you are. And then when he actually lets them out of prison, he flips it around and he keeps only Simeon, the second born. Keeps him in prison All the other guys are sent home with a whole bunch of food, and Joseph arranges to have all of their money, or to have all of their money put back into their luggage on their their donkeys, so that it doesn't cost them a dime to get all this food in order to save the lives of their families, of Joseph's family. They still don't know that it's Joseph. Today's story picks up at the point where probably a few years down the line, The food that they had purchased is just about to run out. And so dad, Jacob, wants to send the boys back, but there's this argument that's going to play out because they know that they have been told, you will not be allowed back into my presence, Joseph's presence, unless you bring your younger brother. But dad doesn't want to let the younger brother go because, as we saw last week, dad thinks The ten brothers are a miserable lot, not worth having, and Benjamin is the only one worth having. He said such insulting things to his other boys last week, and it's really going to come to a head this week. So, if you've got a Bible, please open it up to chapter 43 of Genesis. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's on page 36 if you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles. It starts out with this stark statement. Genesis 43 Verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. Now, if we were just reading this at home, we'd probably read over that and keep going. But let's just, let's just pause and think about what the reality of that sentence is. I want to show you guys a series of four pictures. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tug on your heart, all right? 
Let's look at these pictures. The first one. This is a little boy in Yemen, so just across the uh, the Persian or the uh, the Red Sea Gulf from Africa. He's been starving for a long time. Let's go to the next one. Here's a little guy on the opposite side of that same body of water in Sudan. Go to the next one. A different boy in Yemen getting medical care. Look at those arms. And then this guy, who to me, he looks like a, a puppet or a statue. Like, it's hard for me to imagine how he, he can sit up, having wasted away that much. I went to do some research this week as I was working on this message because I have never experienced anything like the reality that those pictures represent. I remember being a kid and seeing news stories about famine over in in Africa. I think when I was in elementary school, it was Ethiopia that was really experiencing severe famine. And seeing those pictures and videos and stuff, but I've never seen that up close. Even when I've traveled to Honduras on mission trips and seen kids that are really, really hungry. Like the only way they have food is because of the ministry that, that have supported there for, for years, being able to give them food. They are so much better off than this. This is what I picture when I read those words, the famine was severe in the land. Not just there was a famine, but the famine was severe. And so I had to wonder, how many people are dealing with this kind of hunger today? And I found a few details I want to share with you. In 2019, there were 690 million people in the world suffering from what is called chronic hunger. Now, that's not what you saw in the picture. But chronic hunger is you you can't regularly get enough food to do the things that life requires of you. So you can't work a good, steady job because sometimes you're just too hungry to do it. You can't go to school and learn well because you don't have the food fueling your brain in order to allow you to, to do that. It's, you're not quite starving to death, but you can't do what you need to do because you don't have the food to do it. That's 690 million people in 2019. Addition, additionally, in that same year, there's 135 million people who are suffering from acute hunger. That's the, the pictures that we saw. Those are extreme examples of acute hunger, where you are starving to death, where it is the lack of calories that is going to kill you, and it is an imminent threat. 135 million people in 2019. Now, in 2020, that number doubled to 270 million people. Now, if you think about the fact that there are 330 million people as the population of the United States, this is a staggering number. For those who are essentially starving to death, to, to double in one year is it's just amazing. Now, we don't see that at all here. We are really, we're not suffering here. And anybody who wants a job can get a job right now in the place that we, we live. And we have enough food. But these 270 million people, the doubling of last year is a result of that COVID-19 virus. Not the virus itself, but the way that the world, all the governments of the world have shut things down for months and in some case even now a whole year. That is what is causing this starving. And that's not going to go away. If, if all of those economies suddenly opened up this week, 
that starving would continue on probably for years because the system now is so broken. This is a huge crisis. If you consider the fact that that maybe 3 million people have died from the COVID-19 virus, and yet there are 270 million people who are starving to death right now, it kind of puts things into perspective for us. What is it that we are actually doing to our world right now? So none of us have experienced this kind of hunger. None of us have had to uh, go without for a significant period of time. Maybe we've been hungry for a day or two. Maybe we've had to fast because there's a surgery coming up or you're just too sick to eat. But probably none of us in this room have experienced that choice where you have to start rationing the food because you know it's going to run out in a few days. And then mom goes without because mom wants to make sure that the kids have more. It's hard for us to imagine not being able to get what we need. And yet this winter in Texas, that ice storm comes down and people are without power for days and they experience a, a fear of not being able to get what they want. They, they can't get the heat that they need. 69 people died because of an ice storm in the United States in 2021. That's not supposed to happen, right? Or a year ago, did you experience that panic where you went to go get toilet paper and there wasn't any? What are we going to do? Now, imagine you can't get food. Not because everybody panicked and bought all the food and you got to wait another few days for the next truck to come, but because there's no food coming. There's no food being produced. There's no food being shipped. Your garden has dried up. Your neighbors have no food it's not a matter of, I don't have enough money or I'm in the, the wrong spot at the wrong time. I can get food some other way, but it's, there's just no food. That's what is in that first verse. The famine was severe in the land. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that you could walk to Pittsburgh and you could buy food? You'd start walking, right? That's the same distance that Joseph's brothers are sent to walk to buy food. Now, what would you do if you knew that you couldn't go back to Pittsburgh and buy more food unless you brought your younger brother and you had to argue with your dad in order to convince him to let your younger brother go? That's where we are today. Verse 2. When they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. You see the... Desperation, just a little food, guys, just a little. But Judah said to him, The man, Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, throughout this chapter, they will repeatedly refer to Joseph as the man. They don't know his name, they don't know that the little, the teenage boy that they sold as a slave is now the man who they are so afraid of. Verse 4, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down to buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I have to wonder, what's their backup plan? Are they just going to stay there and starve if Benjamin will not be allowed to go? If they argue with their dad, they say, we're not going unless you send Benjamin. 
Israel, that is Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly? Not why are you speaking back to me now, but why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you have another brother? So this is typical Jacob that we've seen through his life. He's so selfish. He's so centered on himself. He's like, how could you let the secret out that you have another brother and now you're going to bereave me of my beloved son, you worthless son? How could you let this out? Just thinking about himself, his own suffering. Verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? It's not our fault, Dad. He's, he was a tricky guy. Dad, you know something about being tricky. He got us to give him information, and he used that against us. We didn't know. Now, I bet that this same argument has played out dozens of times in the last couple years in this family's life as they watch the food stores getting smaller and smaller, and they realize they're going to get to a point where they either leave with Benjamin or they starve. And yet this is the final conversation where the balance has to change. Somebody has to step in and make a change here. And to our surprise, it's Judah that steps up. Judah, Judah, the, the one who slept with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was just a, a, a pagan uh, prostitute on the side of the road. Judah, if you remember, had a change take place when he was confronted with his own guilt. You remember that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, became pregnant when that became obvious and he learned about it, he was filled with this, what he thought was righteous indignation. My daughter-in-law is a sinful woman. Bring her out and we will stone her publicly. You guys remember that story? And then Tamar reveals that he, Judah, is in fact the father of this baby. And reality comes crashing down on Judah. And rather than making excuses, rather than running away from his guilt, Judah confesses his guilt, and he repents. He changes. He goes in another direction. You may remember this verse. This is uh, Genesis 38, 26. He says, in front of basically everybody in the, t- in the family, he says, she, Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. You have to go back and read the story to make sense of that. And he did not know her again, meaning he did not have intercourse with her again. That's the repentance. That's the change. So there's a confession. I'm sinful. I'm more sinful than she is, even. And then there's the repentance, the change there, too. And and in that moment, the Spirit of God is working in Judah, starting him in a new direction in life. And yeah, he probably made all kinds of messes of things and in the years since then. But then, in this moment when somebody has to step up, Judah is a different man than he was back in this other chapter. And he's going to now, he's going to make a a risky promise to his dad. He's grown, he's more mature, he is, I believe, being shaped by God into the man that God has called him to be. And that started with repentance. That's true for us too. When you hide, when you conceal your guilt, 
you short-circuit your growth. When you repent, when you confess, God works through that. He moves you forward, changes you into a different person, exactly what he did here with Judah. Verse 8, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. There's a sense that we've been arguing about this for a long time, Dad. Let me take the boy. I give my life as a pledge. If I don't bring him back, my life is forfeit. You must demand from my hand the life of your son. I promise I'll bring him back or I'll give up my life in the process. Now, I want you to think about the big picture of the Bible. Think about the New Testament and how this links together. Judah offers himself in exchange for Benjamin. Judah gives his life, offers his life as a ransom to be paid if he cannot safely deliver the beloved child back to the Father. 2,000 years later, Jesus, who is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, will give his life as a ransom to ensure that the beloved children can get home safely to the Father. Only God can write a story like this. This is Moses writing this uh, 1,400 years before the the birth and death of Jesus. And yet this, this chosen family of God, the story in which Judah, loser Judah, gets transformed into a picture, a shadow of the sacrificial death of Jesus, which would occur 2,000 years after Judah. Only God can put that together. God is at work in this family. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And so we see that even though they're starving to death, they have held back some of their best, what they call the choice fruits of the land, probably for just an occasion like this. So they got certain things that the land of Canaan produces really well, and they're going to use that as a way of paying for food. They're going to take it to Egypt and offer that as part of the payment. And then they also have apparently a lot of cash sitting around. They got no food. They can't buy food locally. They would if they could. They've got the cash to do it. You remember the the story of Jacob, how God enriched Jacob over many years? That enriching of Jacob is being used right now to save the life of this family. It was on purpose. They would not be able to go buy food and save their lives if God had not worked in Jacob so many years before in order to enrich the family. It all comes together. And so now, this moment of truth. Jacob agrees to send Benjamin. He will trust Judah to return him. He says this, Take also your brother, arise and go to the man, 
May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. Now, there's a strange and surprising mixture in this little chunk that we just read. Jacob acknowledges God as Almighty. Again and again through the Jacob story and even part of the Joseph story, we've seen how the chosen family of Israel doesn't tend to talk much about the God of Israel. The brothers show up in Egypt and they mention nothing about God. And then there's that that surprising exchange where whom they think is just the, the pagan governor of Egypt is actually their brother. He uses the Hebrew name for God, Elohim, just the general term God, but in Hebrew, when they had nothing to say about God. And now here in this, we have this surprising insertion of God into the story. Jacob says that God Almighty, may he grant you something. The word there is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Jacob is saying, I believe that God is all-powerful. That there is nothing that can stop him from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Some of you just need to hear that today. If you belong to God, you are a child of an all-powerful being who can accomplish, who has the power to accomplish everything he wants to accomplish. Jacob doesn't question that. What he does question is, What does God want to do with this all-powerful store of energy that he has? He's not questioning the power of God. He may be questioning the goodness of God, but he's certainly questioning the plan of God. What is God really up to? Am I going to lose my children? But at this point, he's desperate. He says, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So what does he ask for? What does he ask this God Almighty for? Not success, not protection. He asks him for mercy. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. You and I need mercy. Just like these boys needed mercy. They think they're returning to Egypt and they will be considered thieves because of the money that was in their sacks when they returned to Canaan last time. They are terrified. You and I need mercy even more than that. We looked at that last week. Romans chapter 3 lays out clearly for us our need for mercy. We are guilty. We deserve judgment. What we need is mercy. So these guys head back to Egypt with their younger beloved brother Benjamin to see the man, and they're hoping for mercy. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, so he doesn't talk to the brothers, he talks to the the steward of his house, He, he said, bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So get the party ready, he says. 
The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they, brought, they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. So they see that the motion is set There's going to be something happening in the house. They assume that it is for their bad, even though it's actually for their good. These are guilty men. They know they're not guilty of stealing the money, but they know they are guilty of what they did to Joseph so many years ago. And that guilt is still eating away with them. Eating away at them. We'll move on to 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, that is the manager of the house, and they spoke with him at the door of the house. They said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it again with us. They're saying, please, don't put us in prison. Something went wrong before. We didn't mean to steal it. Here, we've brought it back. Actually, we brought twice as much money back because we've got to buy Some more food. Verse 22. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He, that is the manager of the house, replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to me. Simeon, who had been waiting in prison these years for his lousy brothers to come back and get him. Simeon comes out. And so there are two great surprises in this particular passage here. The manager of the house, who's an Egyptian, greets them in Hebrew with the traditional Hebrew greeting of shalom, peace to you. Now the guys, they're still not putting these puzzle pieces together. They don't understand what's going on. How would this servant of an Egyptian governor know to greet them in the way that the Hebrews greet each other? They don't know. This is still the way the Jewish people greet each other even today. Shalom. And then he says, your God, using again the Hebrew word Elohim, the God of your father, again Elohim, has put the treasure in your sacks for you. Now, we know from the previous chapter that this man physically was ordered to put the money into the sacks. And yet, he's attributing that to the God of their fathers. So there's this chain of command. He knows that his master, Joseph, serves Elohim and is doing the bidding of Elohim. And so as he obeys Joseph... He is doing the bidding of Elohim. And he assures these guys, look, you don't owe me anything. I received your money. Your debt doesn't exist. And here's your brother to show you that there's no hard feelings. At this point, the guys are confused. They don't understand what's going on here, what's happening. Verse 24, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So they get all the choice foods together and the money together, and they get themselves all cleaned up to be presented before Joseph. They don't know yet what's going to happen. 
They are afraid. They realize they're being given mercy already, but, but maybe this is all a setup. Maybe Joseph is going to come down and crush him. Anyway, maybe they're really not going to get the mercy that their father prayed for. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them. That's the fruits of the land of Canaan and the extra money. And they bowed down to him to the ground. Remember those early dreams of Joseph? His brothers bowing down to him? And he inquired about their welfare. And he said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before him. So they're laying on the ground in front of their brother, whom they do not yet recognize. And he, Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, his only full-blooded brother, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? He hasn't seen him since he was two years old. God be gracious to you, my son. He speaks a blessing to Benjamin. Joseph then hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Now, the Hebrew word here for compassion is rahamim. It is most often, uh, I'm sorry, the second most way that it is translated in the Old Testament is this word compassion like we have here. But the primary way that rahamin is translated is a different word. Anybody want to guess what that word is? Starts with an M. Mercy. Yeah. Way to go, Joe. Bonus points. Yeah. So the story's coming together. This compassion, this mercy rises up, emotionally rises up in Joseph to the point where he can't control himself. He's got to leave the room and go cry. God's at work. God is actually hearing the prayer of lousy Jacob, and he's giving mercy to this family again. Verse 31, And he washed his face, and he came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself. So he's eating by himself, probably up on a raised area. And them by themselves, that is the Hebrew brothers, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, that's kind of surprising, right? The Egyptians, the the pagan, polytheistic, lots of gods and goddesses, not particularly moral Egyptian people, look at the Hebrew people, the chosen people of the one true God, who are to be a holy, set-apart nation, a light in the darkness representing God. They look at those people and they think, we cannot eat with them. We are so much better, so much cleaner, so much more religious. We are, we would get ourselves dirty if we ate with those Hebrews, the chosen people of the one true God. That kind of thing is actually happening in our culture even today. Are you ready? for our culture to view you like the Egyptians viewed these Hebrews. 
Because you are the chosen people of God now, and you are called to be lights in the darkness, to be representing the one true God in our culture, and yet our culture is changing so quickly that if you live your life in the way that God has called you to live, and you speak the truths of the Bible, even in gentle, calm, controlled ways, increasingly you will be viewed not just as old-fashioned, not just as backward, but as evil, as on the wrong side of history. We say, there are people losing their jobs every day now in our free speech country because they will say the very thing that the Bible says. And they'll stand with it. And they're not being jerks about it. This is a rapidly unfolding revolution, a turning of our culture. Are you prepared to be on that difficult side? It's coming for us. And we see a little bit of that here. Now, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus warns us about this. In Luke 6, 22 and 23, he He says this, Blessed are you, speaking to his beloved friends and disciples, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil. Those people of Versailles Christian Church, they are evil on account of the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself. Rejoice in that day, Jesus says. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets, that is, the Old Testament prophets before them. Jesus says, people will hate you if you stand with him. They primarily hate him, and if you belong to him, they will hate you too. We see a shadow A foreshadowing of that as the Hebrews are set at their own table and the Egyptians look down their noses at them. Verse 33. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. And the way that the ESV translates this kind of conceals a little bit of what's going on here. We're meant to understand that Joseph has set them in order from oldest to youngest. And they're like, what? How does he know that? How uh, like the youngest is easy, right? But how did he know all the other ones? And they're still not putting it all together. The men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of the others. They drank and they were merry with him. Joseph has extended them mercy undeserved mercy, just like God gives us mercy. Joseph now, though, is also going to test them. So he doesn't really know yet, are these guys being truthful? Can they be trusted? Are they dangerous like they were when he was young? And so he's going to, in the next chapter, he's going to set up this elaborate test. It's going to be dramatic. We might even say it, it seems like mean on his part to do this to his brothers, what he's about to do. But the test starts right now. Yes, he's being merciful to them. He's giving this great banquet for them. But look at that last verse again. And they drank and were merry with him. Joseph 
is getting his brothers liquored up to see what comes out of their loosened tongues. Okay? Remember, he understands their language, but they don't know it. So he's going to listen as they talk and as the words come out more freely because they're a little inebriated at the party. What kind of things are they going to say? It's the beginning of this testing. But the real test comes next week where there's a, an actual threat and a hardship. But the testing begins right now at the very time that he is extending them mercy. Joseph is being merciful to them, but he's also testing them. God is merciful to us, and he also tests us. Not to find out what is in us. God already knows that. But he tests us for our own good. We face tests, trials, hardships, because we grow through them. James says that very clearly in chapter 1 of his letter we call the book of James. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, tests, sufferings, hardships. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says, don't run from your hardships. If you are being tested, if your faith is being tested, if you you don't know if you can stand because your knees are getting wobbly and you, you don't know if you've really got the faith needed to make it through this, don't run from that hardship. James says, count it a joy. Because that testing is for your good. It produces steadfastness. When that steadfastness is full, you will be perfect. Not meaning you never sin, but perfect as in complete. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You will be strong and mature in what way? In your faith. That's what he's talking about here. Fully mature in your faith. How do you get fully mature in your faith? Through testing, through hardship, through suffering. And yet we are always trying to run away from that, right? You may have hardship testing come into your life because of stupid or sinful things you've done. You may have hardship or testing come into your life because of sinful things that other people do against you. And sometimes you have hardship and testing come into your life simply because God puts it there for your own good. God works through Joseph to test the brothers in the context of mercy for their own good. God's about to pour out amazing blessing, greater mercy on these guys. And he's going to make them walk through a painful, terrifying hardship of testing in the process. So don't run from it. You're already living in the context of mercy. So when the hardship comes, embrace it. As James says, count it all joy. Because it is your heavenly Father building you up towards maturity and faith. Jesus didn't run from it. Aren't you glad he didn't? As he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have ran. Could have snapped his fingers and gotten out of it. But he didn't. Jesus, who needed no testing, he was pure. He was 
perfectly strong and capable, yet he goes through a trial. He goes through a hardship. He doesn't run from it. He embraces it, and it is for not his good, but our good. And yet, surprisingly, it's for his good too. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Kind of, it would make more sense if we went with verse 1, but we'll just pick up mid-sentence. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So that, See how that ties with James? Your faith will be perfected, made complete. How does that happen? It's through Jesus, talking of his sufferings now. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't run from the testing, didn't run from the hardship. He received it, as James said, counting it as joy, and its product is joy. For the joy set before Jesus, he didn't run from it. He ran to the hardship for you and for me so that we could have mercy. It all swirls around itself, back and forth. Old Testament, New Testament, mercy, judgment, trials, hardships, guilt, all that stuff swirls around and you end up with this beautiful, full biblical picture of how God is working all through time in order to rescue us. Back in the story of Joseph, God's working in order to rescue the people, the nation, the little family of Israel. But the bigger plan is the rescue of his people, the church. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't run from that hardship so he could extend us mercy? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, ongoing story of Joseph. Thank you that you worked in Joseph, that you caused him to forgive his brothers, extend mercy to his brothers, Thank you that you have extended mercy to us. You've offered us forgiveness. Lord, if, if there are people in this conversation this morning who have not received that gift of mercy and forgiveness, may they do that soon. May they recognize the great sacrifice that Jesus himself was in order to secure that mercy. May they receive that gift. May it be an increase in your joy as they do that. And Lord, for those of us in this room who are in the middle of or about to face hardship, and we don't know if we want to try to avoid it, do we want to run from it or will we embrace it? Lord, give us, give us the joy to embrace, to embrace that hardship, that trial, that testing. And may you make us steadfast in it. You make us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. May you grow us as faithful children of God in that time of testing. Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We're not having communion, but we are going to have a time of reflection. So the band's going to come up, and they're going to play music for us for a little while where we can reflect on the Joseph story, and the Jesus story of mercy. You can, you can spend that time in prayer. You could pull your Bible out. You could read the passages that we just went through. You reflect however you want, but it's just a, a pause in our lives to give you a chance to interact with the God who loves you so much. What is he trying to do in you right now? Ultimately, he finished that work on the cross. 
and yet he's still working in you right now. So let's spend some time and allow him to be working on us.